This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bowman. This is uh, another episode that we're doing right here from the Yakima Valley. And we're sitting in the most beautiful of locations out on the uh, the patio of Bale Breaker Brewing. Kevin Smith, uh, uh, co-founder, brewmaster, is with me. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and welcome to Yakima, guys. We're here in the shadow of hop vines. And of course, the brewery itself is surrounded by hop fields. Your family uh, comes from the loftus ranches, uh, the family. You've built the brewery right here on a property that's uh, adjacent to all of the hop fields. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we uh, so we opened the brewery here uh, in 2013. Um, it is located in the center of a hop field. Um, that hop field is field number 41. So if you've ever uh, enjoyed one of our pale ales, that's what it's named after. Um and yeah, so I came from a, a long line of uh, hop growers. We're hop growers first and uh, brewers second. And so. And now uh, you're brewing. Yep. Now, sure. now we're brewing. Now we're brewing coming up on 10 years. And so the hop farm uh, started with my great grandparents back in uh, 1932. And we've, we've harvested hops every year, uh, every year since. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to get the full story. Uh, and a certain, you know, one of the interesting things is you've taken advantage of that connection with the family hop farm, um, the connection to farming in general, the connection to the broader Yakima farm environment. And you are growing your own ingredients here on the, on the farm, not just hops, but also barley, um, taking advantage of, yep. of all the things that Yakima Valley has uh, to offer for you all and, and integrating that agriculture into your beer. Can't wait to delve into that. I mean, even that, that ag- agriculture even extends into cannabis now. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and so you are, you are a multifaceted uh, beverage maker uh, working oh, yeah. in a whole bunch of different agricultural fields. Let's talk, we're, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some fresh hops. We'll talk about uh, using your own hops. We'll talk about your approach to hops. Obviously, you've grown up around them. And uh, here we are. You spend a lot of time around them, much more time than most other brewers out there. So I'd love to talk about all of those things. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, GD Chiller's new micro channel condensers. GD's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for info on patented ProCarb inline carbonation technology, ProFill rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, 7 to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew, a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand, offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. Also, thanks to Yakima Valley Tourism for helping make this visit possible. To plan your own trip to the Yakima Valley, start at visityakima.com. If you love beer, you owe it to yourself to spend some time here in the valley. And uh, of course, this is where where beer is grown, where hops are grown, where uh, you know this provides that foundation for the beer that we love. And it really is beautiful to be here this time of year when hops are on the vine, when harvesting trucks are running back on the street behind us while we talk, um, where hop, like excess hops just seem to line all of the streets of Yakima, Moxie, Toppenish and whatnot. Like they're just everywhere. It's just hops, hops everywhere. It's a beautiful, beautiful time of year. Anyway, uh, let's talk about that. So, Kevin, give me some of the background on uh, on Bailbreaker and uh, following this arc of the launch of the brewery. Obviously, Loftus Ranches was a successful hop mm-hmm. grower. There wasn't necessarily a need to launch a brewery, um, you know, but you all saw an opportunity and wanted to to kind of explore that. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, I guess kind of the genesis of Bailbreaker obviously starts a little bit um, before we started making beer back in uh, 2013. Um, 
you know, I was growing up on a farm. I've got a, a older brother and older sister. Um, we worked on the farm growing up and kind of got to see the first craft boom kind of running through and, you know, getting to meet people like Benny Clarizzo and Ken Grossman when we were just working on the hop farm and kind of realized this is a cool industry to be in. Like a lot of cool guys. They're all super jazzed about what they do. Um, you know, we kind of just thought our dad was a weird farmer and like, you know, <laughs> sure, sure. what is this? You know, it didn't seem any different to us. That's just what we always knew. Um, but then once we started, you know, getting older and seeing kind of how cool uh, people thought craft beer was and how cool the, the people making craft beer was, we, you know, kind of piqued our interest. And so um, I was over in Seattle uh, at University of Washington. Um, I graduated and within a few months I had my first brewing job uh, over there. Um, I brewed at Two Beers Brewing Company for, you know, about two, a little over two years. Um, and that was about the time that my sister and her husband were in Quarter Lane, Idaho. Um, she was working for a winery over there and he was doing some sales. Uh, my brother had just moved back to take over the family agriculture operations. And my sister and her husband were like, hey, we kind of have a crazy idea. Um, you guys want to open a brewery on the hop farm? And, you know, there's so many wineries like in the middle of vineyards and no one's doing it in the middle of a, a commercial hop farm. And so uh, my, my from my point of view, I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, I, I want to make my own beer. That, that's awesome. You know, I'm, uh, I love making other people's beer, but to be able to write your own recipes sure, and, sure. and take it over from from that uh, point in the process was very intriguing to me. Um, so I had the commercial brewing experience and uh, they had, you know, business, finance, sales. Um, my dad and brother, uh, got on board early and, and we kind of thought, well, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. You know, and, and we owe it to a lot of our, our, uh, hop customers to be able to, you know, really show that we care about as much about quality as they do. And, uh, we care as much about this industry as they do, not only from the, uh, agricultural side, but also from the, the beer production side. And so that, that's kind of, kind of where it started from. Sure, yeah. sure. So as you start the brewery, uh, how did you start thinking about the beers that you're going to make? Now you have an opportunity to drive a beer program for that. Certainly because of the proximity, you know, because of this location here, because of all of the hops all around you and your easy access to them, focusing on hoppy beers is kind of a no-brainer. It makes a, makes a whole lot of sense. Oh, totally. And, and you know, that's what we, we like to drink, too. Yeah. And so uh, after I left Seattle... Um, I actually moved back into our old farmhouse that was built in uh, like early 1900s, around 1900, uh, with my sister and her husband. Um, and we retrofitted an old milk house for cows uh, with a Sapco system. And the year that we were building the brewery, uh, I think we brewed just over 100 batches on the Sapco, um, trying to dial in sure. our, our first couple of recipes. And so uh, we kind of were trying to do a little different take on like some of the West Coast styles at the time, you know, we, we like dry beer and, and big aromatics. And so that's what we were focusing on. And, and we wanted a really like pointed portfolio when we opened. So we we're basically just only brewing pale ales and IPAs uh, out of that little farmhouse. And when we launched, that's all we launched with. We launched with a dry hop pale ale and which was, which is field 41 pale ale and top cutter IPA. And those, those have been our two workhorses since day one. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you designed those and formulated those, and then maybe even talk a little bit about how they've uh, developed and uh, and grown over the years. But before we do that, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also looking for a good lager yeast fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation provides brewers large and small with the most complete portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere. To learn more about how fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. Dot com. So you started, uh, you know, wanting to make a very highly aromatic, uh, you know, but also modern West Coast IPA, you know, that really pushes hops forward. Uh, and you still do that to, you know, to this day. What, uh, you know, but I should also say that you do it in a format that also hits all of those technical 
beautiful technical standards that uh, that we truly love about beer. Joe Stang and I were here a couple days ago, uh, just Saturday, after meeting up with another hop grower here in Moxie, popped in, you know, and, and we both remarked just how beautiful the foam was oh, thank you. on the beer, the lacing as it just sat there. Like, I mean, it's really something else. Um, you know, but talk to me about building, you know, this idea of a modern uh, hop forward aromatic IPA and, and how you started in that formulation. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with kind of like our, our thought process on on West Coast uh, IPAs and PLLs and because that's really what we started with. And so, um, you know, at the, at the time kind of coming out of the Northwest, there, there was a lot of really aromatic beers and, and we always kind of say up in the Northwest, you know, uh, we never really cared about clarity and to begin with, um, you know, we look back at some of the, the classic, uh, styles coming out of the Northwest, the, you know, Mac and Jack's and Manny's and stuff like that. And they they were always unfiltered. Um, but we, we wanted to kind of ensure that the beer going into our cans was, was really clear and, 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 um, trying to be able to do that with providing enough malt character to, uh, carry the amount of hops that we wanted to showcase in the pint glass was, was a little bit tricky coming, uh, coming out of the gates. Um, but I mean, for the most part, we we're trying to just build a backbone of malt that is just enough to, to carry it through. Um, but yeah, so, so one of the biggest things when we started was really, you know, we wanted to put as much emphasis into every single hop edition as, as we could. Um, you know, we, we thought that the, the bittering edition was just as important as the dry hopping edition. Um, and so we were looking at the hops, you know, what their cohumulin percentages were, you know, how they behave in the kettle. Um, so we could ensure that we're getting predictable, um, present bitterness, but, but that doesn't linger, you know, it kind of hits your tongue and, and you know that it's there, but then it passes away with the drink. And so that, that was a big, uh, a big part for us was, was really dialing in the flavor and the bitterness, um, with the same like approach and the same like care that we do to just aromatics and, and, and flavor. And so that, that was one of the first big steps. And so we, we love here to, to bitter with like Simcoe and Warrior, uh, both of those hops, like do a very good job in the kettle. They're very predictable. Um, and so we, we lean heavily, heavily on those, but then getting into the aromatics, you know, it's, what's the timing oh, like look like on that? I, I, you know, yeah. or is there anything that uh, you're doing that's particularly different or special to make sure that that smooth but present bitterness is there from the start? Um, one of the things that yeah that we're doing there is is a lot a lot of our IPAs will take a first word edition of Simcoe to kind of get you know depending on the IBU load, but to try to get you know maybe a third or 40% of the way there with, with Simcoe. Cause we just know, know that hop like the back of our hand and you know, it, it plays well everywhere in the process, but it is a very good bittering hop. Um, it was actually bred to be a bittering hop originally, but the alpha acids weren't high enough to like, like tag it for the alpha market. And so, uh, it was a, what I would say a beautiful failure for craft brewers, um, <laughs> is that we got Simcoe. Um, and so we like to do first word hopping with that. And then some of our, you know, bigger West Coast IPAs that you might want a little more of a, a bitterness bite. Um, we'll add some warrior extract to the kettle um, to just kind of uh, save volume, not add too much plant matter there. Um, but again, warrior is just so predictable um, in the way that it bitters and it has a pretty low uh, cohumulin percentage. Um, and so th those when are... you mentioned that, what do you, you know, and I imagine there's some range to these for both of those hops. Is there some you know, spot that you look for in terms of alpha and cohumulone for those that uh, you find yeah. generally will produce a nicer bittering for it? Yeah, totally. Um, if, if you can find uh, a hop that is like in the upper teens or low 20% cohumulin, you know that it's going to be something that's probably going to give you a, a nice soft bitterness to it. Um, once you start getting up, you know, over 30 and into 40% cohumulin, it starts to get a little less predictable or at least the calculated IBUs might come across uh, a little bit less than the perceived IBUs. And so that's, that's an important part of, of the recipe building for us is, is knowing that when a hop gets boiled, what it's going to do to the final flavor. And so we, we're even pretty wary about that in 15 minute and whirlpool editions. And it doesn't mean that we don't use, you know, 
higher coh hops in those stages we just know that we might need to shoot for a little bit lower target ibu um potentially and so um or we might use those out of purpose like in an imperial ipa to ensure that there's some rough bitterness where people might expect it and so um so for the most part that uh, like simcoe's maybe in the high teens in Cohumulin, and that's why it's just so beautiful and predictable. And there, mm. there's a couple old hops too that are out there, like Horizon. Um, I know that one's hard to find now, but that that was like down around in the low teens. I mean, I feel like you could throw 150 IBUs in a beer and make it drinkable <laughs> with Horizon, but I mean, that, that, that hop's hard that to find That sounds like a challenge days. that so, somebody <laughs> should, uh, should take up on. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, but so th- that's definitely the first step that we kind of look at in terms of of crafting a West Coast IPA, but after that, you know, the the flavor and the aromatics kind of become a blank slate, and it's kind of whatever is up to the to the brewer or the the creative mind behind the the beer at that point. And so, um, depending on where we want to go, um, you know, it's a lot of you know trying to feature um, you know bright citrusy hops, or if we want to take it a different direction and go really dank um, and and just kind of pair pair with those. But we usually try to pick a lead hop. Um, that might carry, you know, 50% of aromatics or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then find some nice supporting casts that'll either elevate or add something that that hop doesn't. And so, um, with, let's say like with top gutter, it's, uh, it's a Simcoe Citra, um, Laurel and Citra is the lead hop on it. But the, the Simcoe adds a little bit of pininess and a little bit of grapefruit that the Citra is not bringing. And the laurel just kind of rounds it out really nicely with a little bit of like floral floral aromatics um, that aren't too overpowering. And so that was kind of where we always wanted to be. Um, and Top Cutter's definitely evolved over the years, uh, but it's always kind of stayed true to the initial uh, kind of um, framework that we started out with uh, back in the old milk house. And so. Laurel is kind of a bold choice for a uh, modern contemporary IPA. Yeah, totally. I I, I think that Laurel, um, you know, and, and this is my personal opinion. I, I I don't think that it gets a fair shake with some of those other uh, some of those other hops. I, I I know that you know maybe leading with a Laurel IPA may may not be overwhelming in the aromatics, um, but a lot of people think that it's more for you know kind of faint. Uh, aromatics in a in a log or, or like a, a a blonde ale or something like that. And while it it does succeed in those beers, uh, it's an extremely good complementary hop in IPAs. It it can it can really elevate um, other hops or or even cut a big dank hop um, and bring it back to something that's a little bit more palatable. I think that there's a lot of uses for it in in modern uh, modern hoppy beers. That's interesting. What are what are some of the other lead hops that you use? And I love this idea. It's we have had similar conversations with like, you know, the guys from Hop Butcher, you know, because they've got their uh, their bangers, you know, those big hops. And then there's you know almost what we got, I guess we're called the point guard hops that uh, you know that, that oh, play totally. that the play that assist role. What are what are some of those other leads that you all find yourselves hanging beers on? Yeah, totally. Um, we we've. Built beers, uh, I mean, Citra is, a, is obviously a big one, and it's a big one for most people in the industry. Um, we love using that hop uh, to, to build around on West Coast and Hazy's. Um, Mosaic's one of my favorite favorite hops to use in terms of, of really bringing, you know, complexity and dankness uh, to a beer. That yeah. one's really fun, and of course, it's we're in the middle of that harvest right now, and so oh, yeah. there's some mosaic uh, out of the kilns, and uh, it's it's fun to, to to smell the range of it out there right now. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it goes anywhere from blueberry to pine, and then it can just roll into some dank, uh, dank complexity where it's not just onion garlic. There's a lot more going on there, but when it brings a little bit of that OG, you can get some real, real complex aromatics uh, coming out of your pint glass, and so. Um, that, that's a big one that we like. And then there's a couple of experimentals that we get to play with that are kind of out in the super elite trials. So they might be getting names here pretty soon. But one of the ones that we've built some seasonal uh, IPAs around is HBC 630. It's got this nice, uh, you know, nice approachable citrus characteristic to it with a little bit of like tropical fruit. Um, and, you know, it's nothing, it, it's not, doesn't quite carry the intensity of like a citra or a mosaic but all the complexity is there and it plays really well with other hops and so um 
with us, since you know we're basically using ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of the hops that we use at Bale at Bale Breaker, uh, we grow on one of our two farms. Um, we're a little bit limited in in the sheer number of hops that we we use because um, you know we only grow about fourteen or fifteen varieties on the farm. Oh, only. Yeah, o- only. But but you know that's a that's a short playbook. You know, for a lot of sure, you know sure. some some brewers can you know we'll dive into you know thirty different hops or whatever. Um, where, you know, we're a little limited in that, but we, we love the hops uh, that we use. And so it's a lot of, a lot of our beers, you know, we'll, we'll take a Simcoe Citra or Mosaic as the lead. And then we just try to fill in, uh, fill in where, where we see fit around it with uh, some experimentals or, or even just some nice, um, some of the nice public varieties that, that we grow that, um, that may not have the sexy name to it, but that just elevate a beer. So... And I want to talk more about that too, because you also get to select some of your hops straight off the ranch before, before they even get out there into the broader mm-hmm. world. And I want to talk to you about that a little bit later on. But I want to I want to stay on the the IPA train here first and talk about, um, you know, building that malt base because uh, you know, as you, anyone who pulls up to the brewery sees, you've got two big silos out there, and one's pale malt and one's pilsner malt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you then build a, uh, you know, but then you're also re- like I said, really maximizing foam in the beer and some of the other technical pieces that come with that um you know how, how do you build a malt to support say a you know a, a top cutter um so yeah a, a part of that is, is pr- right uh providing enough flavor to carry the amount of hops that you want to deliver all the way through and so with with a top cutter um you know it's it's having a good base of two row and then with top cutter, it's just uh, honestly a little bit a little bit of Munich, um, probably upwards of about seven and a half percent Munich to add a little bit of flavor without you know any of the cloying sweetness. Sure, uh, give it a little bit more color than like straw, um, and and then we just use a little bit of dextra pills to to round it out. Um, it, it's a very simple, um, straightforward West Coast malt bill, uh, but you know just trying to pick only the enough ingredients that um that they're all there for a purpose right and so that's that's something that we always strive for here is is you can get as creative and complex but every ingredient needs a role that is defined and so that kind of helps you know bring the simplicity down uh or or you know make you know taking a very simplistic approach but everything is really there to do a purpose. And so, um, with that, with that, I mean, top cutter is a very basic malt bill. We, we also will craft, you know, West coast IPAs where we're blending Pilsner and Turo, you know, blending Munich and Vienna, adding wheat, adding oats and a low percentage though, where we can still spin it out in the center fusion and get a clear beer. Um, and so some of those, you know, some of those IPAs where we're at, you know, three to five, five percent white wheat and five percent oats you know you can get a lot of malt complexity in there without it you know drifting all the way to the ha- uh, hazy realm and so um so but but you know we we stay away from some of the crystal and the caramel malts uh especially because we're like 70 percent package and we just don't you know some of those crystal malts might lead to some uh some of those oxidized caramel sure, flavors sure. that kind of shorten uh, a hoppy beer's shelf life, um, if, if not done, you know, perfectly well. And so, um, and so we'll, we use a little bit of caramel malt, maybe some of the Imperials that you need a little bit more sweetness to back up like the sheer bitterness. Right. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's, you know, deliver the, I wouldn't want to say the bare minimum malt flavor, but, but, make sure that there's enough to carry uh, without it detracting from the hops because that's the centerpiece of, of these styles of beer. Sure. I'm sure. Is there anything to your, your mass strategy or is it just a relatively straightforward? Uh, for, for the most part, relatively straightforward. We, we like low mash temps. We really like dry beer mm-hmm. here. And so a lot of our West Coast IPAs are finishing, you know, under 2.5 Play-Doh. Um, you know, Top Cutter finishes at 2, 2.1. And so it, it's a dry beer. Um, but just knowing that uh that you know we don't jam too many ibus so it's it's palatable um when you get that dry you know the the hops can really jump out so it's just finding that balance um between you know enough malt flavor 
um, without residual sweetness. Um, but, but with, you know, you don't want a hop, you don't want someone to be scraping their tongue after they drink your beer. Right. So, you know, just finding that balance, um, in, in giving it the environment where the hops can shine. Right. And so that's, that's, you know, where it's picking malts that have a lot of flavor, but not so much that they're going to detract from the beer in the long run. And so. Sure. What's fermentation look like for those? Yeah. So all of our West Coast uh, IPAs are, are fermented with 1056. Um, we typically uh, like to ferment it on a little bit on the cold side to reduce any fusels, um, you know, for... Uh, How cold? What's that? How cold? Uh, oh, cold. Uh, so basically between 63 and 65, oh, okay. um, yeah. de- depending, you know, all of our Imperials, anything over 7% alcohol, we're fermenting down around 62, 63. Um, anything between six and seven, you know, might we might pick it up a little bit. So it might be like 65 degrees. Um, and then we'll do a four degree diastole rest um, to to bump it up. Um and on, on a lot of our core beers, it's just a single, uh, a single dry hop that's all post-fermentation. Um, mm-hmm. We like to keep our yeast source clean from hops because, you know, yeast is the beating heart of the brewery. Sure. And so just a, a single, um, single post-fermentation dry hop that we spin, uh, spin with a, a um, twin screw uh, impeller pump um, to reduce, you know, keep oxygen low and, and really get a lot of contact time out of that. So, and, and what we see, what we do a lot, we use a lot of cryo here. Mm. And so post fermentation, we like to use a lot of, of cryo hops, like kind of take the bract out and just really let, uh, really let those like oils and concentrated, you know, hop aromatics shine. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that certainly has other pragmatic, uh, you know, benefits in terms of, you know, reducing the potential vegetal flavors. Yeah, and, totally. Uh, um, but also interesting because then it would have to go through, you know, from the ranch over and be processed into oh, yeah. to cryo and then come back over here to, oh, the, yeah. to the brewery. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, we, we still, yeah, we, we get all, uh, all of our hops from Yakima Chief, our, our farms partnered with them. Um, and so we have, we have no, uh, pelletizing or processing on the farm. So all of our hops that we select from the farms, all, all head down to Yakima Chief for, uh, processing into extract pellets, uh, cryo. Um, and storage down there as much as I'd like to have, be able to hold a year's supply of hops. Uh, our cold room isn't quite that big. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. No, I'm sure they have much uh, larger, more expansive facilities for that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit, or talk to me a little bit about that dry hop again. Uh, you know, in terms of temperature, you know, where do you keep that? You tend to dry hop on a single charge, multiple charges. I like the research idea, mm-hmm. you know, obviously just to, to continue that, but it, does that shorten the overall dry hop time? Um, with the with the recirc, it, it can shorten it probably by maybe a day or so. We we spin it um, spin it on day one. So if we if we add hops, uh, we'll let them sit overnight to kind of soften, and then spin it the next day. Mm. Um, and then we let it sit at that temperature, depending on what uh, exactly like what beer it is. Um, it'll sit at what the dry hop temp is, which oftentimes for us is about fifty two to fifty five degrees. Okay. Um, if, if it's a post-fermentation dry hop, because we like to crash the yeast out and remove as much as we can mm-hmm. um, before we spin it with the hops. And so um, so most of our dry hopping is done in the mid-50s. Um, and yeah, it, it's about a three-day three day process. Um, but we, we also employ a lot of different dry hopping techniques for, for one-off beers and for hazies and things like that. And so we do use a lot of T90. I'm sure a lot of a lot of brewers have, have come across hop creep in the past, and um, and it's kind of a newer technique that a lot of people are have been talking about over the last few years. But is is the fermentation dry hopping where you're getting the biotransformation, and what we see is it kind of uh, accelerates uh, the hop creep. And so um, so if we add it on day three or day four, usually by the time fermentation is done, uh, any of that um, kind of cleaving of sugar, long chain sugars that's happening with the T90, um, and the enzyme that seems to be more prevalent in that part of the hop. Uh, it's usually spitting the diacetyl out and cleaning it back up by the time fermentation is done. And so, uh, we can confidently add the, uh, secondary dry hop with out really worrying about uh, hop creep. We obviously check it, but we don't see it happen very often. 
um, after we do the uh, fermentation dry hop. And so uh, if basically if, if it's a hop that we're not um, or if it's a beer that we're not harvesting yeast off of, oftentimes we will add a T90 hop charge um, in order to just push that hop creep along um, and keep the beer moving and tracking, uh, you know, tracking as a 21 day beer, which is what we like to do with our IPAs. Uh, sometimes that hop creep, you know, you can start pushing out to 27, 28 days. Right. And while the beer will typically always clean itself up, uh, you know, that's that's tank residency time that you, you can't really get back. Sure, sure. Um, you mentioned high gravity brewing as you we were walking around the brewery before. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, do it, using that kind of technique in order to, uh, you know, to you know, produce more beer uh, on the uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say you've got a lot of equipment there. You've got a lot, some mm. big tanks oh, and yeah. uh, 30 barrel brew house and you're pushing a lot of beer out there. Uh, but that helps you increase some of the efficiency of what you do. We moved to high gravity brewing probably about two or three years ago, um, kind of when we we're starting to butt up at some of our brew house capacity. Uh, we don't like running 24 hour shifts here and we try to stay away from weekend work as much as we can. And so when we started seeing that we're, you know, doing running some 24 hour shifts in the summer when we're running at capacity or brewing seven days a week, uh, we just kind of started thinking of more efficient ways to use the brew house and the labor that we had um, without bringing on, you know, too many more new people just for, you know, what is sometimes eight or 12 weeks in the summer that we really need to be like cranking. Right. And so uh, so we started just uh, adding, you know, basically adding more malt to all of our recipes. So anything that the original gravity is about 14 and a half Play-Doh or lower, or maybe 15 at the tops, um, we'll brew as a high gravity beer. And so we'll try to jam in, you know, uh, as much malt as we can. Our, our mash on, you know, we can hold, you know, about 3,100 pounds of malt in it. And so we'll just try to max it out basically. Uh, and essentially what we're getting then is we'll cast out to the fermenter about 30 barrels of, you know, 20 Play-Doh wort. Um, and then we'll use our hot liquor tank and heat exchanger to cool down sterile uh, hot liquor and blend that back to the target gravity. So essentially what we've been seeing is instead of taking three brews to fill a 90, it's two. And instead of four to fill a 120, it's three. Um, that said, we can't do it on every beer, Imperial IPAs and uh, big stouts, we still have to run just 30 barrel knockouts. Uh, but for the most part, it's been able to increase our volume. Um, sure, we lose some malt efficiency, but we're gaining it back in, in brewing hours and uh, kind of making sure that we can keep our the staff that we have um, when we crank up that we can keep up with demand. So Sure, sure. Well, let's talk about uh, looking at hops and evaluating hops. But before we do that, ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter, proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom-designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Also, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Picked at the peak of ripeness, the fruit is pureed and frozen for optimal fresh flavor and color. But don't just take their word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfectpuree, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. Uh, you know, so as we were back there in your old cold box, uh, you know, along with you know, checking out some of the barrels that you have there, uh, you know, you've got just baggies and baggies of, of hops coming off the ranch right now that, uh, you know, that you're going through an evaluation process on. You know, as somebody who's grown up around hops, who spent, you know, a good portion of their life around them, uh, you talk to me about, you know, building that kind of sensory approach and, you know, what, how you evaluate and, uh, you know, some of the mental tools that you've built for understanding, you know, within a similar, uh, the same variety, some of the range of difference, uh, you know, that can kind of, that can come from that uh, and how you go about that evaluation process. Yeah. So I, our selection process is, is unique to the industry for sure. Um, there's some benefits to it and, and there's a few drawbacks to it. Uh, obviously, one of the, the biggest benefits is is we get to see hops 
all year long in our backyard. Uh, my dad and brother are out in the fields, you know, every day looking at them. We, we have some insider information. Um, however, one of the drawbacks is, you know, if, if a, a brewery is coming into Yakima to select, they can select, you know, they might have hops from seven different growers out there. Um, where we're only looking at two farms. And so, um, although I believe that they're two very good farms, so, <laughs> sure, um, sure. so obviously I'm biased, but, uh, but so what we try to do to be as fair as possible, um, is we're trying to, to quickly smell the lots as they're coming off. Um, and so our sensory team is together basically every single day, uh, rubbing and sniffing what's coming off of the farm. Um, and so we can give a thumbs up to Yakima chief, a thumbs up or a thumbs down before it even gets to Yakima chief. And so once it gets there, then it's, you know, can be on the table for any brewer. Um, and so we're just trying to stay, you know, stay on top of it and rub and sniff and, and find ours, uh, before it gets muddled and into the mix with a, a bunch of different brewers. And so, um, so our sensory team, we go through a lot of training. And we should say this, that like you're getting them as kilned whole cone hops. Yes. Um, correct. Yeah, before that they're, before they're bailed. Yes, correct. So, yes. So the, the bailing team, uh, the night crew and the day crew each day before they start bailing fills up a gallon Ziploc bag for us and, uh, writes the lot number on it and, and the variety. And so, uh, so we take it and, you know, each day about midday, uh, we grab a, a handful of our, our sensory team that's, uh, that's trained, um, in, in hop sensory. And, and we kind of just do a round table, um, and, and blindly rate the hops. Uh, we don't know what farm they came off of. We don't know, uh, when they were picked or when they were bailed. And so we're just trying to go through blind. Uh, we have no alpha acids. We have no, no oil content. Um, and so we're just trying to look at what, what, is this, I guess, is this our interpretation of Simcoe? Is this the citra that we want or the mosaic that we want? Um, and so watching that kind of, because each hop has its own harvest window in it. And even within that window, it kind of evolves. Um, so basically every hop will eventually turn to onion and garlic at some point. <laughs> sure, um, sure. And if the farmers are good and they're getting them off the vines at the, or off the vines at the right time, um, that's when, you know, that's when you're getting those characteristics that you think of from the varietals. And so we kind of have a target of when we like these hops. And so we like early Simcoe because that's like really grapefruity with a little bit of pine. Um, we don't like our Simcoe to be really dank. You know, we, we look for dankness in other hops like Mosaic and Equinot and, uh, and, you know, Citra, we really like to have it like right on that cusp as it's about to turn. We want it really bright, but with like a little bit of roughness around the edges. So we know what we're looking for. And it's, it's essentially just timing when those are coming out, coming out of the kiln and being like, yep, that's, that's the, the citra that we're looking for. Um, and try to get a, a, a decent consensus among the team and, and, and get it held and moved on to the next variety. How do you convey that across the team? Because I mean, I think for, for lots of brewers out there, you know, coming ac across a common understanding of what something is and building a language to describe that together in a collective way becomes its own kind of challenge. Oh, a hundred percent. It's, uh, it, it's pretty difficult. We have, uh, uh, we have a larger sensory team for hop evaluation than most breweries do. A lot of breweries, you know, they're coming from out of town, they, they're sending their head brewer and, you know, maybe a, a, a quality team member or something like that. Um, for us, we run basically anyone that would like to be a part of it has to go through a sensory training um, where we're evaluating, uh, you know, isolated smells, essentially. Um, so when someone says, hey, this smells like grapefruit, that the person across the table knows what they're smelling, because sometimes it can be, you know, up to interpretation. Um, someone might say tropical fruit, but we might want to try to dig a little bit more like are you saying papaya or are you saying mango like the, or, you know, passion fruit? Those are all different tropical fruits. Um, and so we go through a little sensory evaluation to try to build a lexicon that we can use. Uh, so when we're standing around discussing, it's uh, we're all talking, you know, the same language, essentially. Um, and so usually that process, you know, it 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 puts the people that really care about the process are the ones that are going through the hurdles to get onto the team. And so it's made up of, you know, 
our, our entire quality team and, and pretty much all of our brewers and sellermen for the most part. And, and, you know, a couple of packaging guys are super interested too, but you know, at any given day we've got, uh, you know, we, we will have seven or eight different people smelling hops and given, given their analysis off of it. And so. How do you process that? Is it all pen and paper uh, or is there some other system around it? Uh, we actually, so, uh, we had a, um, uh, a company called Loftus Labs. It's like data, um, uh, data scientists. Wow. You guys are even in the tech sphere. Yeah. We we just started, uh, yeah, started, started doing some data tech, uh, geared towards agriculture. And, uh, one of the guys on the team built us a little app, uh, so we can plug it all in blind and, uh, record that data, um, and put it into a dashboard for future years to come. Um, that said though, we've do a lot of pen and paper as well. Usually it's, it's quick to do it on pen and paper and then we can backlog in into the app. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. But, but, uh, but, f- but for the most part, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. Or, or, you know, if you have a brewer that's starting at four in the morning and he needs to get out before the round table, he'll use the app and then we can just look at his, uh, you know, look at, you know, the, the answers that he put in. You and, can just and cheat just, off of his yep. notes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so as you're going through, you know, a variety, I think, you know, especially for, for brewers that may not have gone and selected before, or even, you know, brewers that come and select at specific times when not every, everything is necessarily, you know, the full range of something may not be fully available at that point. You know, how, how would you describe, you know, uh, you know, for a, a, a common hop like Citra, you know, just what the kind of, you know, front and back end of the, of that bell curve look like. And, uh, and then what the middle of that, you know, picking season looks like, I mean, what is, what does that range look like? And, you know, how do you, uh, you know, then develop some preference for some piece along that broader range? Yeah. It's, you know, you know, that's, that's pretty tough because it's, it is one of those things where, every brewer is going to have their own preference, right? And, and what their beers are built around. Um, you know, I, I know plenty of brewers that, you know, I, I said, I like the early, uh, Simcoe, you know, that might be on the front end of the bell curve where it's like, you know, grapefruit citrus and, and maybe towards the top of the, that curve, it starts getting more pine and then it'll start fading more and more into onion garlic. And I know a lot of brewers that, you know, their flagship IPA is built around dank Simcoe. And so they're like, let it hang. I want it. I want it stinky, stinky. And, and, you know, then that's just not our preference. And so, so for here, you know, we try to select the hops, like in the window that we have built the beers around, uh, I I guess is the best way to say it because it, it is an agricultural product. And so it, there is a chance for it to be different year to year and field to field. And, you know, our farms are 25 miles apart. Like there is a difference, you know, on any given day, like September 9th in Moxie, those hops smell different than September 9th in, in, uh, in, uh, Granger. And so just like knowing and understanding that and trying to keep consistency is, is, you know, paramount to the process as possible. Uh, that that's our goal. Um, but also, you know, if, if you're, you know, a, a brewer that maybe you don't adhere as much to flagships as, as, uh, someone like us or, or some, you know, some of the more, you know, breweries that have, have like standard flagships that that come out all the time, they might just be looking for the most intriguing and complex hop. And there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, it's just kind of solely the preference of, of, of the brewers. Um, but you know, that, like, like I said, though, like with the bell curve, it, some of that is on the farmer to try to get it off at the top of the bell curve. Um, although you can't pick every hop at the same time. Right, and right. so there, there's still, the curve still does exist. And so, um, so kind of picking on that curve is, is typically, you know, on the left-hand side of the curve is going to be a little bit, might be a little grassy, um, at the very, very beginning, but it'll start feeding into those intense aromatics of whatever the hop is, you know, citra you know you might get some like pineapple some peach like peachos um mosaic you might get a lot of that berry um and even a little pine um and then as they all kind of crest the curve they just start moving from their like core uh aromatics to onion and garlic and so anything on that back end of the curve is just slightly getting danker and danker and danker until it turns to all garlic at one point sure sure um you mentioned having two different farms that are 25 miles apart 
How much difference does the kind of terroir make between those two? Do you find that, you know, in terms of you know, where what you're selecting within specific varieties that you are consistently selecting from the same farm for 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 a, a similar variety you know does you you just find yourself preferring citra from one farm and simcoe from another farm on a regular basis as you're selecting blindly or does some of that cross over more often um it's it's interesting how consistent our pick days and farms have been over the last few years um yeah a funny example of it is uh is i think now it's been about three or four years in a row we have selected simcoe from our moxie farm loftus ranches uh on the same day about four years in a row and about three out of four of those years odell's selected the same lot so (laughs) like so there there are friends that are like have the exact same preference sure, and simple sure. as us. And, and it's funny. I, I just saw those guys down at the brewery last week and we laughed again. It was like an, another year in a row. Like we've, we've, we're either the same lot or within like one day and from the same farm and everything. And so it, it's funny how, how that happens. And, and yeah, we, we do see, I guess in difference in terroir, I definitely do see a little bit of difference. Our, our Granger farm, uh, tributary hop farms is, it, it seems like the ripeness down there is always about two days ahead of Moxie. It's a little bit further south. Um, it's a li- like a few couple degrees warmer down there um, pretty much every day. And so it does seem like those hops mature a little bit faster. Um, it doesn't mean that like the target smells are all that much different or anything, but it's just usually a, a Moxie is just a couple days behind. And so, yeah, um, yeah. so we, 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 we know that during our selection, um, but we don't put any, uh, any real weight on one farm versus the other. Like I said, we do all of that blind. Um, but it is interesting to see when we select like, uh, like, oh yeah, it's tributary citra again, you know? And so it, it, it is funny how it falls. Um, definitely. But that, that's just over the data that we've collected these last few years. And it's, it, it's interesting to see how how consistent we are even being blind. And you're right, you know, even mentioning it in that kind of, you know, Odell capacity, and I've heard this from other brewers, that the same, that they have found that even when they are selecting blind, that repeatedly they're selecting from the same farm and from a very similar time frame for that picking, that, uh, you know, that once you develop that idea for it, it's amazing if, you've, if you're dialed in enough just how consistent that can be. Yeah, totally. I don't know if you're, if somehow our, our brain puts a marker in and when you smell yeah. it it just lights it back up but it but it is interesting to 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 see that how has climate change affected any of that i mean obviously now especially like even this year weather is getting weird you know this oh, totally. this was a much better year in terms of smoke but a yeah. a weird year for the entire hop crop and then there was a cold spring and then it got mm-hmm. very hot immediately um you know i know a lot of farms over the last day or two have been talking about or actually just pausing picking so that some mm-hmm. of the later pick hops can sit there a little bit longer totally. and ripen a little bit more before they they kick back into that. I mean, it's a an odd year for that, which can mm-hmm. potentially upset some of those ideas about when and what. Oh, oh, totally. Yeah, you're 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 spot on there. It it was a it was a very cold spring, uh, very uncharacteristically wet for the Yakima Valley too, um, which definitely delayed the hops coming out of the ground. Um, then it just turned, light switch turned, and it got very, very hot. Um, puts a lot of stress on the plants. Uh, what we saw was more mature plants, you know, that might have been three, four years old. Uh, they took the heat just fine and bounced back from the cold spring and kind of got into their own groove and, and finished out just fine. Uh, the babies, uh, all kind of first-year hops uh, kind of throughout the valley, kind of looked like the, they struggled a little bit to bounce back. Um, so it'll be a down year for sure, uh, for babies in, in terms of quantity or yield, um, quality, uh, the weird thing about the cold spring, the, the quality is remaining very high on the plants, uh, at least in, in what I've seen, um, the cold spring kind of held the, the, like the plants back a little bit. So the like vine size is smaller. And so you're actually getting a little bit more sunlight directed to the cones. 
and like less of the plant's energy getting pushed out to like growing leaves and, and stems and things like that. And so the aromatics and the quality of, of a lot of the hops out there are, are very, very good. It's just going to be a little bit of a low yield year. Um, and so obviously that's hard to predict in terms of the, of the climate change um, is whether, you know, is it going to be a cold, wet spring or is it going to be uncharacteristically hot? Like, you know, we just like the the unpredictability of of the seasons right now is, is a challenge for farmers. Um, but you know, in terms of the smoke, this was a great year. We only had a couple days of smoke. Um, in years past, it was months on end. And, and, you know, people coming across smoke taint and hops and trying to figure out where is the smoke taint coming from because it's not uniform across every uh, right. every variety and every farm and, and everything. So then that leads some people to kind of believe, is it more on picking window or drying or, you know, uh, cooling or conditioning? Was it you know, uncharacter uncharacteristically smoky that day. Um, those are all questions that don't have direct answers right now, I would say. Um, but you know, it's with, with anything it's, you know, trying or with any kind of agricultural crop, trying to just navigate each season with like how unpredictable some of the, the weather patterns have been over the last few years is, is, is definitely a challenge. And like you mentioned earlier with like some of the hops pausing, um, a lot of that is in the, in the high alpha hops. They just haven't had enough time to like generate their alpha. Right. And so they're, they're letting them hang a little bit longer so they can try to push those alphas up. Um, cause if you're picking, you know, warrior Pato and it's only 13 or 14% alpha, like that, that's going to hurt the, the alpha market. And, and so letting them hang a little bit longer to try to push, you know, push those alphas up closer to 20 uh, is, is going to be, you know, something that the farmers are, are navigating, but it's going to then, you know, help out the, the alpha market and, um, and be able to, uh, you know, not have too big of a dip or too much of a surplus or shortage in, in, in any of those markets. And so. Sure. Sure. No, it's going to be a, an interesting year all around, obviously problems in Germany, uh, Idaho's having a, a difficult year this year. You know, there was a lot of hand wringing earlier this year about additional acres going in, but uh, I imagine by the end of this harvest, nobody's going to be complaining about uh, having uh, an extra thousand or two acres of, of hops in this year, given that uh, it's going to be a significantly down year across yeah. the board. Yeah, totally. And and you know, there's a lot of hops out there coming out of the pandemic, and there could be a little silver lining of of not getting into you know, large surplus and shortage, like, you know, the hop industry saw in the past and right. seems like they've been able to avoid that over the last few years and of really balancing, uh, global inventories for the most part. And so with the pandemic, obviously that was unforeseen and, you know, a lot of brewers got hit by that. And so, you know, there's still some hops on contracts out there. And so a, a little bit of a short year may not be a bad thing in the long run. Right. Um, right. And, you know, as long as the quality stays high, brewers should be happy. And so, sure, um, sure. So all that should work out. So speaking of, of that uh, uh, agricultural piece, you also have a beer on right now, you know, homegrown, which is a fresh hop beer, but that uses barley that you've also grown here on the farm. Talk to me about, uh, you know, building, growing all of your ingredients for beer and, uh, you know, then growing and uh, harvesting your own barley for beer. Yeah, it's uh that that was a fun project. My uh, brother-in-law Kevin Quinn kind of that was his brainchild, and he took it and, and ran with it. And it's been a super fun project. We planted about forty acres of barley, um, just outside of our Granger farm uh, a few years ago, and we've been harvesting uh, harvesting that and trying to make um hundred percent estate grown uh, beer for the last few years. And and it, it's been a fun project. We picked. Uh, um, you know, boutique, uh, barley variety, Franson, um, you know, it's not, not as popular as the Copeland and, and things like that. And so it carries a, a different flavor than our base malt, which is nice. So our, you know, our homegrown beers have a, a distinct flavor profile to them, um, where the malt is shining through a little bit more, um, than our, than our flagships. Um, and, and my dad and, and his cousin, uh, um, they used to grow grain back in the day. And so when we kind of approached them about this project, it, they were like, yeah, we've, we've done it before. Let's do it again. And, and so they <laughs> yeah, planted it. They, sure. They've had some fun with it. And, 
we've had some some ups and downs with the crop but all in all it's been you know it's been been pretty good uh a couple harvests ago we actually planted wheat and oats as well and so we could make some hazy ipas um but these last couple of years we did we just went back to barley and just kind of refocused our uh homegrown is just west coast ipas and so basically we have uh once we harvest it we have great western uh malting out of vancouver malta a large batch of pilsner for us and then um, if we want any specialties done, we'll send that over to Link uh, Malt in Spokane and they'll, you know, make some Munich or Vienna or Dexter pills for us. And so we kind of have a, a handful of different varieties that we can use uh, to craft uh, craft some different different IPAs. And so right now we're releasing three of those a year. We release one in the spring. Uh, we release one at harvest time. That's a fresh hop. And then we release one in the winter. And so it's a, it's been a really fun project and something that we hope we can keep keep going uh keep going with because it, it's you know with our tie to agriculture it's just fun to be able to kind of put all the pieces together state beer i mean that really is you know something uh and kind of fascinating and interesting let's talk about fresh hop i mean obviously it's fresh hop season uh you know in a previous episode of the podcast we went through single hill they're brewing a ton of fresh hop beers um, but doing it in a pretty unique way for them. You have a different approach to brewing fresh hop beers, um, you know, that, that fits what you're looking for in fresh hop beers. Talk to me about the way that you brew a fresh hop beer. Yeah, totally. Um, we, we've gone through a, a, a lot of different iterations of our fresh hop beers, and, and we're happy with where we, we've settled now. Uh, but when we first started, I mean, we we're uh, our flag, our, our like flagship uh fresh hop beer that we do uh, just for ourselves was called Piled High um, Fresh Hop IPA. And that started out as actually a 100% wet hop beer. Uh, we wet hopped the mash. We wet hopped the grant. We first worked uh, with body bags of wet hops, a 15-minute edition, Whirlpool, hop back. And then post-fermentation, we'd move it out of a fermenter into another fermenter stocked full of, of fresh hops. And so... Um, it was a very unique beer. Um, some people were like, this tastes uh, like eating a hop cone. And at that <laughs> point, we were kind of like, well, yeah. this is what we're going for. Um, although then we found out like that that was extremely unpredictable. And uh, one year it would turn out absolutely amazing. And one year it would uh, taste like vegetal matter. And so we slightly moved away from that to you know kind of get a little more predictability and so uh, right now what we're doing is, is you know, we typically like to try to add wet hops whenever we can. So we always throw them in the mash because it's just fun. It makes the mash smell good when you're, when you're mashing in. Um, but then we, we've got a 20-barrel hop back on our 30-barrel um, brew house. We obviously got it massively oversized uh, just for fresh hop beers. And so, um, so we've, we fill that up. We try to get about uh, roughly you know, probably right around 15 pounds per barrel, um, of wet hops on the hot side. Um, and then we supplement, you know, just to get baseline bitterness with, uh, pellets in the kettle. Um, and then after we'd run it through the hot back, we'll send it back to the whirlpool where, where we'll do an additional pellet charge there to try to dial our IBUs in just cause the, the hot back's a, a crapshoot on how many IBUs you're going to actually pull out of it. And so we try to write the recipe to be like, all right, if, if we want this thing to be 55 IBUs, we're going to craft the recipe so it can drink at 40 if we miss, or it can drink at 70 uh, if we extract like way too much out of the hot back. Um, and then typically in post-firm or- What are, what are some oh, of the uh, constraints in that recipe design that make it a little more flexible for that? Um, it It's really just kind of trying to, you know, keep like the original gravity and final gravity in check. You know, we, we don't want it, you know, if it's, trying to make a 9% alcohol imperial IPA where you really need those IBUs to carry through. And if you miss it, you're just going to kind of have this sweet malty water with fresh hop aromatics on it. And <laughs> okay. so, um, so it's just kind of staying within bounds. We like it, we yeah. like it to be dry um, and kind of just shoot just under our target to give us a little bit of, of wiggle room there. Um, but I mean, it, it's mainly that, you know, most of our, our wet hop beers, you know, are, are coming in between five and a half and seven percent alcohol, so we're always kind of targeting right around that forty-five to fifty-five range, knowing that they'll if they float outside of that range, that they should still uh, pass through on 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 being balanced with the bitterness. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Um, you know, then on the dry hop side, uh, you know, do you do anything with, uh, with hops there? Yeah. So, um, we, each year we do two, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but I, I we call them cheater fresh hops to get them out early. <laughs> <laughs> we, because, you know, the, and actually this is a, this is a personal plug that I'll put in. I, I've always said that, uh, September is the month for making fresh hops and October is the month for drinking fresh hops. But I think some distributors and things always want to creep up a little bit and no. have people drinking the no. fresh hops in Seasonal September. Seasonal creep? What? <laughs> and so we caved in and, and we make a couple of those. So there is, there is actually uh, our homegrown that we grow the barley for. Uh, we can that in 16-ounce cans and draft in our footprint. But we actually brew it about 10 or 12 days before harvest starts. And so fermentation is done on the first day of harvest. And then we go out and grab the fresh hops that we need. Um, this year, what we did is we brewed two 90 barrel batches of homegrown. Uh, one of the 90 barrel batches got the full charge of wet hops and the dry hop and no pellets. And so we actually moved it from one fermenter to another on, I don't even know, it was like 25 body bags of fresh hops. It was like 600 plus pounds in a 90 barrel batch of, uh, of fresh hops. And it sat for three days on that and then got moved off of the fresh hops the other 90 barrel only got pellets and then we blend those downstream in the bright tank um and so that's one technique that we do but that that way we can get a fresh hop out like by like september 10th um into the market and so uh, we also take that approach to brewing one on our pilot system that same way so so we can have a couple wet hop beers but the majority of what we do like the other like seven or eight fresh hops that we're doing this year are the traditional hot side um, fresh hops that, uh, that, you know, just, just get them, get them in the hop back. And then, uh, this year, actually, that was the first year that in the dry hop, we're playing with a little bit of YCH's 301. That's the fresh, uh, frozen fresh cryo from last year's harvest. And so if we want to bump that fresh hop, like aroma up, now we have the ability to, uh, in the dry hop with pellets, as opposed to bagging a bunch of hops and moving the beer all around and, getting worried about oxygen and whatnot so sure sure we'll leave it to those more pedantic than we are to to determine whether that fits some general definition of fresh hop or not oh yeah totally. uh, yeah that's an argument for another day um you looking at bail breaker where you are now uh you know what does the big picture look like for you all what do you hope to achieve from here uh what does success look like and and how will you know when you all have achieved it oh man that's a great that's a million dollar question um Right now, you know, we're so right now we're just selling in uh, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. That's our footprint. Um, we've we've gotten up, you know, we're right around twenty seven thousand barrels. Uh, you know, about the fourth largest brewer, independent brewer in Washington State. So a lot of that already looks like success for us. Um, very happy with where we're at. That doesn't mean that that we're necessarily done, um, but you know, kind of from here, it's a lot of just controlled growth and we still have some capacity uh that we can add on so it's just being smart about what markets to enter uh to keep like a controlled growth going uh where we can keep an eye on our quality um keep the beer close to home so we know it's getting sold fast um and not overextend ourselves or or our employees and just kind of kind of try to hit our growth metrics um with as much planning and foresight as, as possible. And, and that, that would be a, be a success for us is, is, you know, this landscape constantly changes in the craft beer industry. And it's just to always, you know, have innovation on the forefront. And so we're always a part of the conversation and, you know, so we don't get forgotten about or, or left behind in, in, in the way that the industry and, and consumer tastes are, are evolving. Well, it sounds like uh, the farm now has its own lab for pushing these kinds of ideas, you know, and that the uh, you know, the information then flows both ways. And it's also um, really nice to see that kind of, you know, value add to agriculture that, that craft beer provides. Um, and you all illustrate that connection uh, directly right here in Yakima. Well, I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, g Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. ProBrew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Fermentus provides brewers large and small with the most complete portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere. ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter, proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. 
and craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you have since you've been listening to the entire thing, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know this content matters, help support us so that we can keep bringing you content like this live and direct from uh, Yakima, Washington. I shouldn't say live, it's recorded, but uh, (laughs) recorded live here in the Yakima Valley uh, on the ground with folks that are living and breathing hops here in Yakima and of course craft beer too every day. Uh, You know, Kevin, if people want to learn more about Bailbreaker, where do they find you all? Yeah, go to uh, uh, bailbreaker.com or follow us on Instagram uh, at bailbreaker. Um, if you're ever up in the Pacific Northwest, we're, we sell around Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Uh, and we just one year ago opened a, a brewery over in Ballard um, as well. And so if you're in the Seattle area, please go check it out. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for talking about hops. Thanks yeah. for talking about brewing. Not a problem. Thanks yeah. for having me. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.